Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 33 of the Cos WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, and I am joined as ever by my faithful co-host, sports journalist Liam Happ. Liam, how are you doing, sir? tired Dean I'm very tired my daughter decides now to get up at quarter to five in the morning every morning I'm told this is a regular thing for a a two three year old toddler they have a phase where they do it I don't care I hate it I want to curl up in a ball and go to sleep maybe die yeah other than that I'm doing great cool cool well um I mean, it could be worse. We could be reviewing Halloween Havoc 92. Exactly. It could be. Well, we did that. Yeah. Imagine yeah. if you had to do it again. I'm, ju- I'm just glad we had Dave Dorr with us. He kind of made it cheerful with his anecdotes. <laughs> well, we, we have got ourselves a cracking uh, a cracking guest. We have a guest. Today. We have a I guest. I forgot that we did that. It's been we a while. We did. We used... Yeah. Well, it's your laptop's fault. Um, yeah, but... Um, been a big, big week in wrestling news-wise. Of course, we've had the, we've had the ecstasy and the tragedy. We've had uh, the very, very sad passing of, of Silver King, just what, well, just down the road from you in London. And um, and then we've also had the announcement that wrestling is returning to turn the network television with with All Elite Wrestling. So lots going on in the wrestling world. Oh man, I, you know, I, I saw the news reports early on as did everybody tipping off to the likelihood of it, but it still feels so surreal. And it's a little bit bitter that they couldn't just have hung tight and kept WCW on their airwaves. You never know, it might have been good after the after the restart. You never know. You'd like to think so anyway. Probably not, but I like <laughs> to think so. In, indeed. It, it, well, it's... If only they'd have followed your uh, your fan fiction, huh? Yeah, I'm I'm not bitter about losing WWE, nope. no sir, not, uh... not, not at all. And um and we will be um looking in in more depth at uh, Silver King and the the WCW Luchadors in uh, an episode. We hope to record that next week. However, this week, I'm very pleased to say that we have a very special guest, a man I have known for an awful long time, uh, an author, a traveller. And a, a fine gentleman. Welcome to Because WCW, Mr. John Lister. Hello, John. Hello. It's great to be here, though. Um, I'm not a traveller. I do actually have a house. <laughs> I see. Very good point. Thank you very much. Um, so, I mean, we've. I'm thinking we've known each other now. What coming up to 26 years, I believe. Yeah. In fact, I suddenly realised as I was watching the uh, the show we're doing today, the first time we met was probably about three weeks before this happened. Yes, it was. It was a, a fan convention in 1993, and yeah, the sort of the the autumn. Uh, Lots of people there, a young man who later became Johnny Storm, Finley Martin from Power Slam, 
um, a tape trader called Nick Higton. We'll get to him in a minute. Uh, myself and and you, who is dressed, I believe, as Jim Cornette for the day. That is correct. In fact, oh my goodness, uh, this is really bizarre. The other day, um, I had to go to a wedding for the first time in about 10 years, which being a freelancer meant having to wear a suit for the first time in 10 years. Yes. Um, tried on all the suits that I had, you know, worn the last, you know, my own wedding and sort of other weddings and that kind of events. Obviously, none of them fit at all. It's been a been a good 10 years. Uh, happy marriage, happy um, eating. Um, <laughs> and then there was one jacket that um, was absolutely, you know, still absolutely oversized for me today and still fitted. Um, and I looked in it and it was bought from CNA. So I did a quick bit of uh, Wikipedia research, found out CNA uh, closed down in 2001 um, I probably I wouldn't have bought it just before that. Um, so I, I realised I must have got it round about the sick form. I was trying to think, why have I, why have I um, got this enormous jacket from, uh, from you know, CNA in, in the sick form? Because I don't remember wearing that. What would I got it for? And literally just speaking to you now, I've realised it was for the Jim Cornette costume. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> Brilliant absolutely brilliant it's, it's as if the, the jacket has gone full circle now um for, for people who may who may not know who you are give, give us a bit of a, a by way of introduction what is your involvement in the world of wrestling job um so professionally i'm a, a freelance writer now um been um writing sort of professionally all my life um and i've always been involved in kind of wrestling writing dating right back to 1990 was the first thing I ever wrote for was a magazine called Spikes Piledriver, which was basically a fanzine. But unlike all the other fanzines back in those days, which was sort of sold by mail order all around the country, um, this was actually being sold in shops in Steemlidge, the town where I lived. And that's pretty much the only place you could get it. So it was it was generally the number one selling magazine outselling the WWE magazine, uh, but only in the town of Stevenage. <laughs> and, and you've gone on to write books about about trips that you've taken to the US and Japan and places like that I believe that's right yeah I've um, got uh, four books out altogether over the last sort of, 15 years uh, there's one called Slamphology which kind of brings together all the kind of uh, fanzine writing I've done up to that point and also includes tr- uh, reports on free trips going around the states going to VCW Arena Dallas Sportatorium Channel 5 Studios in Memphis, uh, going to sort of WWE pay-per-views. Um, then there was Turning the Tables, which is the story of Extreme Championship Wrestling, which was the first ever book about ECW and turned out wonderfully timed because just as I was about to come up to write the uh, sort of final chapter to it, they had the, the One Night Stand revival, which uh, kind of gave it another life. And it's amazing what this book is. This book about ECW has now been selling and being being bought and read for longer than ECW ever existed. <laughs> um, more recently, there's uh, Perodicy, which is sort of a short book on uh, my first trip to Japan a couple of years ago, kind of looking at uh, the, the wrestling I saw then, also just the cultural experience of being there. And most recently, there's Have a Good Week Till Next Week, and that's a uh, collection of about five years of monthly articles for Fighting Spirit magazine, looking back at the wrestlers of the ITV World of Sport era, 
uh, sort of very in-depth profiles. They're all either based on interviews with the wrestlers themselves, if they're still alive now, uh, if they've passed away, then sort of interviews with uh, people who worked with them, sort of covering their life in the ring and also their, you know, life outside the ring and, and what they did after wrestling. And, and I've got to say, yeah, that was a personal favourite of mine, the the articles that are in, in Fighting Spirit. Obviously, the the world of sport era of British wrestling, very close to my heart. Um, and in fact, I think I was probably quoted in a couple of those articles. That, and um, but th- those are absolutely tremendous articles that I, I've they they told me more about um you know lots of facts about these people that I n- never knew before. So well worth uh, well worth digging out. And let's have a, a quick plug. Where if people want to get hold of these books, is there a website they can visit? Um, best thing is just search for uh, John Lister at, uh, at Amazon. Um, also, you can go to my blog, which is prowrestlingbooks.com. Uh, that's uh, being rebuilt at the moment. It was moved host recently and managed to completely destroy all the content in the uh, process, which was not too much fun. So it's going back up uh, uh, an old book review every day. But on there, you'll find a page that's got links to all of my books on Amazon. Excellent, and and of course you and I used to uh, used to collaborate writing for um your your fanzine by the name of Hulk Who back in the early nineties. That is correct. Yeah, yeah, we used to exchange uh exchange articles and we're sort of both uh, on that that scene, um and going to things like you know the dirt bike kid shows where you suddenly have uh, all sorts of people who came out you know taking part in that those shows like Doug Williams, Alex Shane was refereeing. You, of course, were ring announcing. Yeah. And people in the crowd who were sort of inspired. You had uh, Johnny Storm, Jody Flash, uh, Eric Isaacson, which basically led to the fact that you now have wrestling in Norway. Without those shows, there probably wouldn't be in wrestling in Norway today. Um, yeah. So it's really, yeah, kind of now people looking back, kind of, you know, it's vintage. It's, it's to us what to us men looking back at the 1960s would be, which is quite a scary thing to think. Terrifying. Uh, and which show have you chosen out of the the range of shows available from the WCW archives? Well, this one really has been a long time in the making, and I've gone for Halloween Havoc 1993. And what what reason is that? Well, uh, as mentioned, there was a uh, Nick Higgs, a mistake trader, who was the first person I'd seen advertising in magazines over here who could get you WCW tapes uh, that weren't in the shops yet, the latest pay-per-views, got a few shows from him, uh, you know, kind of really enjoyed him, um, enjoyed the tapes, um, and ordered Halloween Havoc 93 from him, and it never came, and it never came, and it never came, and it soon turned out quite a lot of people were in the same situation, and he was kind of, you know, the first kind of villain on the tape trading circuit who took a lot of people's money and then never delivered, and over the years went to various sort of efforts to, you know, chase him up, keep keep his name out there um and i'm it's 26 years later i'm now <laughs> i'm officially i'm officially tapping out giving up, and thought this is the opportunity to watch it so i've never watched it in the meantime because you know there's always been that thing maybe maybe that tape's going to come but i may be trapping down though though i did look up um you know do a search for for nick higton kind of the areas he lived and the only one i can find who seems to be about the uh right kind of age is a, a hedge fund manager now, I'm not saying he personally caused the credit crunch in 2008 and collapsed the world economy, but I'm not saying he didn't. <laughs> There's a chance. In the, I think I think I was I, was, I, I never got wrestling Don Taku '93, the uh, Hogan and Mutar show. 
Uh, I never I never got that from him, and I chased and then gave up. But um, Halloween Havoc '93 is is a, a show that is very dear to me as well for reasons that we'll we'll get into uh, into later. So um, there, there were these old things called VHS tapes, Liam. You know. Um, oh, that's what they are. Yeah. How, yeah. How, how old do you think I am? I'm not that young. <laughs> Well, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be 34 in a fortnight. I'm well aware of VHS tapes. <laughs> I was just never on the tape trading scene. The absolute closest I ever got to any such behaviour when I had some disposable income of my own was around when DVDs were starting to very cleanly nudge them off the market uh, around mm-hmm. the turn of the millennium. And uh, around, uh, funny enough, talk about the demise of WCW, uh, around when that happened and we got some some fledgling promotions such as the, the Ring of Honours and things like that pop up. That was my opportunity at, at FWA shows, funny enough, to, to start diving into some of that. And that was the only real sort of uh, tape purchasing I did of that nature. Anything else was just walk into Woolworths, see a WWF or WCW tape. Oh, I like the look of that. Pick it up, buy it. Oh, fuck, it's the Chamber of Horrors. What have I done? That sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, which we we reviewed with Stu Allen. Uh, yeah, I haven't forgiven so. Stu for that. <laughs> Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to because WCW. Now choke on that. So let's uh, let's have a look. Buckle buckle up. We're we're plunging headfirst into Halloween Havoc '93. So we start proceedings with. <laughs> A uh, very badly acted movie featuring kids going trick or treating. They um, <laughs> they enter a, a spooky looking gated mansion where one of the kids wants to go home and watch Halloween Havoc. And I can't emphasize just how bad the acting is here. What a um, start Tony, it is. What a start. I love this. It's, it's amazing. Um, Tony Schiavone answers the door and he, he offers the kids some cookies if they come inside the house and they oblige. Um <clears throat> To cut a long story short, Tony Schiavone essentially pulls his own face off and then reveals himself as some kind of monster that I couldn't quite make out because of the low level of lighting. Um, I once again really can't emphasize just how bad this is or how it could result in Tony Schiavone potentially being investigated for historic offenses if it were real. Um, Fortunately, we then go to the event and the obligatory pyro. We're coming at you from the Lakefront Center, sorry, the Lakefront Arena in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, And after the uh, tremendous main event last year, uh, Spin the Wheel Make the Deal is back. Uh, we go to our commentators, Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura, and Schiavone is dressed as Jesse. So the only saving grace, I guess, for the main event is that this one is Cactus Jack and, uh, and Vader as opposed to Sting and Jake the Snake Roberts. And they've rigged the wheel this time, if you're to believe the uh, hoo-ha. Well, that was something I was wondering about, yes. We'll, we we'll come to that. We discussed that in 92, didn't we? Well, the, uh, the rumour I always heard, and I don't know if you knew anything differently john but the rumor i always heard with the havoc 92 spin the wheel was that they had a legit spin and it landed on what it landed on that is the kind of thing that is so absolutely ridiculous and absolutely impossible that the only place you believe it for was 1992 wcw yeah exactly you if bill watts was around there bill watts you know did like things to look legit so i guess that would make sense but as as we'll come to um it seemed pretty clear things were not quite on level on this one 
<laughs> yes. So we um we start off with uh, a six man tag as our opener. It's Harlem Heat and the Equalizer versus the Shockmaster, Ice Train, and Charlie Norris. Um, Harlem Heat are still known as Kane and Cole here, um, but they do have the same music that Booker T has always had. Um, the Equalizer comes down to the ring threatening to rip the opponent's faces off and rip it off, rip it off, rip it off, became an in-joke heel taunt from any friends of mine in the audience at my time as an, an FWA manager. Such was such was the cult appeal of this match. Um, I had to say that I had absolutely no recollection of Charlie Norris until I saw this match again. And I, I guess you could describe him as a pound shop Tatonka. Um a Native American who doesn't really seem to be loving the gimmick at all. Um, so Booker T is known as Cole. Stevie Ray is Kane. Um, not that Kane. Ice Train's a, a massive roided up powerhouse who you can see is, is still having to sort of think through every move and transition. Uh, the Shockmaster has been transformed from a fearsome intergalactic warrior to a lovable oaf in double denim with the nickname of Uncle Fred. Um, Ice Train gets isolated during this match. The Equalizer comes in for the first time, hits two boots, and then goes straight into a chin lock, which is just amazing. Um, even Jesse's trying to make excuses for how bad this is on commentary. Um, Shockmaster just about gets Equalizer up for a slam. The Equalizer hits a clothesline and falls over his own feet. Um, the end of the match comes abruptly, but thankfully when Shockmaster gets Cole in a bear hug and then somehow sort of drops to his knees and places his opponent on his back for the pinfall in nine minutes 45 Kane who's right next to them when this happens then has to run over to Ice Train who's forgotten to get into the ring in time so that he can be cut off for making the save for his partner while Equalizer does the same with Charlie Norris um, it was kind of dreadful but I suppose at least it was brief well you you tipped it off to me um as being atrocious before i saw it so i guess it was not quite as bad as i was expecting which i think is probably the the story of this whole show um <laughs> particular highlights i thought were jesse ventura who was probably at this point uh, getting to the point of kind of no longer caring on the uh, the commentary um not exactly putting people over he's explained in the course of a sentence but isaac's train was very inexperienced the equalizer didn't know what he was doing and the shockmaster was clumsy which doesn't really put it off um as you say quite the finish i think you can best describe it as a uh, somehow if you could uh, combine the boss man slam and sexual assault <laughs> <laughs> and to really you know kind of top off the whole affair um Gary Michael Capetto announces that these are the winners of the first broadcast um, in something that, you know, obviously he didn't care. Nobody picked him up on it and nobody's edited it out since. I never even noticed that. You say that, John, and yet it appears to me that WCW was so offended by Gary's botch there that they immediately sacked him and replaced him with Michael Buffer. Obviously, that's not what actually happened, but yeah, we'll get we'll get into the strange allocation of ring announcing duties a little bit later, I guess. But what I wanted to add to this match specifically had something to do with ring announcers and their ability to loudly shout things to everyone in the arena and to the TV audience, also known as the equaliser spot calling. Oh my days, he. I lost count of how many times he, he just, without any sort of subtlety, was just loudly announcing 
uh, on a couple of times right with the camera by his side uh, what was going to happen next. It, it, it was brilliant. It was, oh my God. And do you know what the crazy thing about this match was? And I kind of agree with John in the respect that yeah, it's it's not as bad as you dread if you're warned about it going in. And it's, it's there are worse matches, which is not high praise. Early on, one of the reasons why it's not like the worst match ever was because they've got, you know, you never thought, Dean, that I would use our, our common phrase, the art of the opener for a match like this. But very early on, for the first couple of minutes... They do very little, not in a bad way. They go very slow. They always say, if you don't know what the hell you're doing, slow it down. Uh, and they just do little bits. They they work the crowd with every move they make. And, the, the you know, the crowd's up for the show, so it worked. And then when they actually tried to do stuff, that's when it fell apart. <laughs> yes. Uh, culminating in, in the sexual assault bear hug. Yeah, I would... Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. See, part of me was wondering if there was something about that, you know, given the the origins of the Shockmaster and the whole falling through the wall thing. I was wondering if he was actually paying homage to that, like he would pick someone up a bear hug and fall over and it would crush them. Probably unintentional, but that's what I had in my mind for the... It was a literal reenactment of his fall and he'd, he'd win the match with it. But, um, yeah, to, to go back to the Jesse Ventura thing, we've covered a, a couple of the the 1992 pay-per-view so far, a couple of which were very soon after he arrived. And one thing Dean and I noticed is that as good as Jesse can be at times, it definitely wasn't a tail end of his WCW run thing where he'd stop caring about putting people over or or, or not putting himself over because he, he was doing it right from the start. And yeah, I've, I've always called him out on this, but I've got to say, and I said this to you the other day, didn't I, Dean? As far as those pay-per-views go, when Jesse's been one of the commentators, this has probably been his funniest. Completely to, almost oh, entirely yeah. to the detriment of the show and what's going on. But just the, 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 the banter between him and Tony was fantastic. And I'm sure we'll go back to it when there's a couple of good moments. But I remember, I can't remember exactly where, but scattered two or three times through this pay-per-view, there's moments where um, Tony's had to take a couple of moments of silence to compose himself because presumably Jesse has just cracked him up with one, with one of his daft comments and Jesse's like it's gone it. into the play-by-play a little bit until Tony's ready to take back over. Yes, there is a definite moment like that. Now, before we move on, I do have a kind of confession stroke story to tell about this match. Um, I, Unlike John, I, I had this show on uh, VHS tape and um, I remember once um, I had there was a friend of mine who I, I, I think John may have met a few times, um, a legendary uh, Australian man called Glenn, who uh, who became nicknamed the captain or Captain Kangaroo. Um, last seen still wandering the country despite having his visa expire about 10 years before. Um, and he loved this match for all the wrong reasons in that it was just like the worst match he'd ever seen. Um, and like, you know, when the equalizer would get in, kick someone twice and go straight into a rest hold. The first time he saw that he was literally rolling on the floor laughing. And this match became a little bit of a, a, a pre-pay-per-view ritual. So in the days where we'd, uh, we'd all, you know, a bunch of friends, we'd all meet up at someone's house to watch, you know, WrestleMania, Royal Rumble, whatever it was live. 
we we developed this this strange ritual where we'd all watch the opener of Halloween Havoc '93 because the thinking was, no matter what we're going to watch on this pay per view, that you know, bear in mind we're staying up till four in the morning to watch. Um, whatever we see on this pay per view, it's not going to be as bad as the opener to Halloween Havoc '93. And so, because of that, this this match has a very strange but very dear place in my my wrestling heart. So, so I have to ask: Was there ever a match that finally ended that? There had to be, surely. There must have been, but I can't think off the top of my head what it would have been. But <laughs> fair enough. Ken- oh, the kennel from hell match, probably. That that would do it, wouldn't it? Yeah. So suddenly you're like. Or the you know. Punjabi, the Punjabi prison, <laughs> or anything with Nathan Jones. Anything with two cages. He's been gone too long. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, moving on, we go backstage where uh, Terry Taylor has been appointed by the WCW International Board of Directors as a second referee for the Rick Rude Ric Flair match, uh, which is for the WCW International World Heavyweight title later on. God, that's confusing. We'll go into that later. Our second match is Paul Orndorff versus Ricky Steamboat. Um, Orndorff is accompanied for no apparent reason by uh, the assassin. Shivani asks why this is. Jesse answers that you hang out with people in masks at Halloween, which is a great answer. Um, Assassin's face is almost popping out of his mask. Um, And I've got to say, he just looks very bizarre. It is very bizarre. You see a man in a shirt, tie, jacket, and an ill-fitting mask. Is it just me? Well, yeah, it was a confusing time for all of us. <laughs> um, Steamboat comes out in his dragon's wings from his WWF run and blows fire. Um, Orndorff's a late substitute for Yoshi Kwan, who we're told is injured and, and was very soon after this gone from WCW. Um, the crowd are hot, very hot for this. They're chanting Paula at Orndorff. Um, and I, I'm kind of thinking this is one of those occasions probably where the sub is best a, cho- a better choice than the original. Um, the match spills to the outside. The crowd are really getting on Orndorff's case. Um, there's a great spot about five minutes in where Steamboat's been lying on the ramp and then he charges into the ring, leaping over the ropes in a cross-body block. Orndorff sees what's happening and just calmly steps aside, allowing Steamboat to crash to the canvas. I, I really like that because it's just different to what I was expecting to see, which was the big spot from the babyface. Um, there's some good mat work from Steamboat. It sees him working over Orndorff's left arm, ending with him ramming it into the ring post as Jesse asks why he hasn't been disqualified in that way that only Jesse can do. And Steamboat is being uncharacteristically aggressive here. Uh, the match spills to the outside again. Steamboat gets sent over the guardrail. Orndorff is finally getting some offense in, but it doesn't last long. Um, in another great spot on the ramp, Steamboat hits an atomic drop on Orndorff, who flies over the top rope and back into the ring. Um, Steamboat sets up for the crossbody block off the top rope, but the assassin distracts referee Nick Patrick, who I believe is his son, isn't he? Um, to buy Orndorff enough time to be able to kick out of Steamboat's finisher. The, the uh, finish comes when Steamboat gets thrown to the floor by Orndorff. The assassin then puts something inside his mask in front of the cameras and headbutts Steamboat in the back of the head. As Orndorff distracts the ref, a groggy Steamboat tries to, but fails to beat the count. Orndorff wins by count out at 18 minutes 35. Um, and as the replay plays, 
uh, Jesse pleads innocence and asks how the assassin could stuff anything inside his mask, which, as he put it, fits snugly over his big fat head. Yeah, I mean, I thought this was this is kind of match for um, it would be the one that you go to a house show and it's one after you go, oh, that was better than I was expecting. That was surprisingly good. Um, two things kind of stood out about it for me. Um, one in the ring, one outside the ring. Uh, one in the ring is uh, they do the old spot where Paul Orndorff's um, going for a sunset flip, holding onto the ropes and referee catches him and goes to kick the feet away. And it takes him about five or six goes to actually um, kick him hard enough to get the feet away. So I don't know if that's meant to be, let's make this spot a bit more realistic. You know, this guy's quite tough. He, it would take a lot to kick him away or just if Orndorff's just fucking with him for a laugh. Yeah. Um the other thing is that this is just after the WCW Slam Jam album has come out. Uh, everybody on that album who's got uh, their new theme song on that album uses on this show, except for Ricky Steamboat. Can't blame him, really, because um, if you, you remember his song, it's about being a family man, including yes. the lyrics. I'm not saying that women don't throw themselves all over him, but he don't give in. He's a family man. So it's a four and a half minute song, song that is basically... He don't shag no rats. Oh, we remember that song all right. The last time we had a guest was Finn Martin. And as excited we were to have Finn on the show, we gave him the opportunity to pick a theme at the end, and he picked that theme. So that's probably why we haven't had a guest join us in six months. I kid, it actually was my laptop. But um, but yeah, that, that theme tune is horrendous. Uh, I think that, that and Jake the Snake's theme, which was never actually used... Uh, which is yeah, not to say it was a good album in, by any stretch of the imagination, but but yeah, Family Man and Jake's theme were absolutely mind-boggling. They took the time to do those bloody things. I loved the heat that Orndorff got for this match. It brought back happy memories for me because Dean and I always bring up the, you know, this is obviously a, a very UK-tinted WCW uh, nostalgia fest compared to the other 5 billion WCW nostalgia podcasts. And one thing that always comes up is those uh, those wonderful days when it was on ITV, uh, late night for most of most of the guys your age, and Saturday afternoon for me as a, as a seven, eight-year-old. Um, Indeed. And I very vividly recall several matches involving Paul Orndorff where he was able to stall to Larry Zbysko proportions just by milking that chant. It, it was cool. I enjoyed it. It was great. Um, yeah, this match I enjoyed. Obviously, it, it wasn't bad in any real stretch, but considering the way it came from out of nowhere, maybe you know, there's, there, are, there are some times where a match would probably be better if it ran a little shorter. And I think that would have been the case here. And another thing that didn't really help in that regard, uh, may, maybe it would have been easier to follow along the length of the match um, if you had some help from the commentators. This was from what we alluded to earlier about Jesse's commentary and the, the, the general lack of, of, of connect with what's going on. Um, one of one of the things that really bugged me was the argument about how aggressive Ricky Steamboat was being. Because if you think about, okay, the the hill's gonna side with the hill on commentary, but 
you know, the the psychology of it was really good. I enjoyed it. The, you know, you had Orndorff who was who was winding up the the infamous white meat babyface, good guy, stands up for virtue, Ricky Steamboat, who obviously throughout his career had a history of getting fired up when provoked. And he was needling him all through the early stages of the match with little little subtle cheating there, the little hair pulls, the the trash talk, just little things to start to wind him up and that's where you saw the aggression come out. You know, in uh, in kayfabe terms, you've got a good strategy from Orndorff. And I would have loved to have been told that while watching the match, especially if you're someone who's out of the loop as far as <laughs> early 90s WCW. It would be nice if they wove that in because that is how it came across. And obviously, sometimes you, you need things to be to be really hammered home by commentary. Otherwise, what's the point in having commentators? Indeed, a commentator's job, as I've said before, is to enhance the product that you are watching. So, um, yeah, we would have liked to have seen that. But, but hey, as we've established, Jesse is Jesse's got a different agenda today. Now, did um, did the assassins stay with with Orndorff for very long? I don't. Cause I don't seem to remember them being a partnership. I think he ended up managing uh, pretty wonderful, didn't he? So he was certainly around. Ah. I remember it was, being, it was very confusing as a fan. You had no un- understanding as you know why this guy was always around. Of course, he was on the booking committee, so he he had to be given work, and he was presumably you know not charging a high salary. But yeah, yeah he definitely seemed to hang about for a bit. And of course, he was selling assassin masks, so you know drawing some money there, I guess. Did, would anyone have bought an assassin mask? Uh, children will always buy some crap. <laughs> True. It was just the, the f- this is going to probably be a running theme of this show as well. But I just also thought for the the quality of the match, it was a weak finish. Yeah. It's just a ridiculous finish. It's it's stale. It's cliche. Uh, and there's a you know in, in wrestling, there's a million and one ways to protect someone in defeat. I mean, I, I just, yeah, I just thought, yeah, they could have had the assassin headbutt him and then roll him into the ring and Orndorff hit something to get the get the, the victory that way, but rather than a count out. But yeah, I, I mean, the, the chief problem for me is is that after these two have gone back and forth in a, in a grueling match of of endurance, uh, to have some fat guy with a headbutt decide it at the end is, is, is kind of unrealistic. But we've seen weirder one-shot KOs at the end of wrestling matches, I guess, which is not really defending it. But, it, yeah, the, there, is a, there is a weird thing as certain things gain magic powers when they need to finish a match. <laughs> yeah. It's also not entirely clear why uh, he needs to put this foreign object inside his mask to do a headbutt behind the referee's back. Why don't you just punch him with it? Yeah, I mean, yes. If 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 you think about it, uh, obviously the assassin is made of more than you or me. Because if I was doing that, I would be knocking myself out with a with an object right <laughs> by my face. But it's it's a very good point that hadn't actually crossed my mind. Of yes, you could just smack him with it. It's a good point. Well made, this solicitor. Thank you very much. Well, um, back to the commentary desk. Tony Schiavone plugs the forthcoming European tour. Uh, you know, the one, it went really well. There's no notable instance to report to HR, that one. Um, I was at the, uh, yeah, it was the Royal Albert Hall, wasn't it? I'm sure you were there as well. That's right. For the, uh, the 
best ever uh, hastily cobbled together match ever. So, I mean, obviously, bad news for Sid, bad news for Arm. They didn't have a great tour, but it worked out brilliantly for us with our replacement match for Hollywood Blondes against uh, Rick Steamboat and Ric Flair. Indeed, that was just terrible. and We hated every minute of it. All 27 of them. <laughs> and I think that was also the uh, show where Vader flipped over at what looked like a rather large old antique Royal Albert Hall table and broke the legs. That certainly uh, seemed to remember that as well. Yeah, that was the uh, last time I ever remember. That was what? That was the last time WCW ran that building. Yes, it was. Funny that. Yeah, and then the WWF came back in the, probably the following year or so. One thing about those uh, that particular show, they uh, had already sold that one out, so they did an afternoon show as well. I remember kind of awkwardly phoning up the uh, Royal Albert Hall, thinking they'd know for some reason, going, is it going to be the same matches in the afternoon? Because I was kind of, I was suspecting maybe if it was the same matches, it might have, you know, the same, literally the same matches, the same outcomes. Yeah. But I didn't actually want to see this. I didn't want this kind of like little bit of suspicion confirmed. So I only went to the one show and um, certainly picked the right one. Yeah, I only went to the evening one, probably because I could only afford one of them. But um, but yeah, um, it it was, yeah, it was a, it was a good tour, I seem to remember. Because they'd, they'd come over in 93 in March, which was where Sting beat Vader to win the world title and lost it back in Dublin. And then, yeah, six months later, they came back for, or seven months later, they came back for this all off the back of, of signing Davy Boy Smith, of course. I also was uh, thinking about that tour earlier today when I uh, was watching the, the show and I mentioned it. And I did probably the worst Marky shout out ever. Um which was during the Dustin Rhodes-Max Payne match. Uh, Dustin Rhodes was, you know, on the defence, selling and getting really beaten up. And I kind of, I knew a bit about what was going on behind the scenes, but I didn't really kind of understand what all the terms meant. So, you know, what Booker actually did. So he's sitting there going, oh, oh, it's so bad. I just said, well, your dad chose this match. (laughs) Did did he react at all? Sadly not, no. Ah, never mind. Um, right, well, um, Tony Schiavone also explains that they've received a memo from the WCW International Board of Directors recognising Rick Rude's big gold belt as a legitimate world title, and so they must do the same. So this was such a confusing situation, but John, you are a, a wrestling historian. Uh, what, what, just for people who may not be aware or have thankfully forgotten, what, what the hell was the saga with the WCW international belt? So Rick Rude was the, uh, or rather Flair was the NWA champion um, who'd been brought, been brought in. WCW was still an NWA member, um, but was they were you know two separate organisations. Um, this was during the, the infamous Disney tapings where they tape three months in advance, um, and you'd see people coming out sort of eight or nine episodes down the line with the title belt that they'd be winning in the meantime. So there was absolutely sort of no secrecies of what's going on. Um, one of these tapings, they had Rick Rude come out with the NWA title belt, which was quite a surprise to the NWA. They had no idea about it. Um, and they then sort of got into this, this legal dispute um, and got them banned from kind of using the NWA title and or um, using the names. They still have the belt and they they wanted to kind of have this secondary title. They presumably had thought about the idea of uh, 
unifying them at some point. So they, they had to come up with an explanation as to why Rick Rude still had this giant gold belt that he'd won and, and why it suddenly had, uh, had a completely different name to what it had before. I believe later on it was renamed the WCW International title to stop it being confused with the, the WCW World title, but it was uh, certainly a confusing time all around. And you may well remember this. This is the, the main thing I remember from this era is that occasionally they'd have the supposed members of the WCW International Board on. What was the name of the one from Germany? The name, oh, is it Peter William? It was not. It was Dieter Crapper. <laughs> I had forgotten that completely. Dieter Crapper. Beautiful. I wonder if he was actually German, because like in the old world of sport areas, I'm sure you've covered in some of your articles, you'd get people who hadn't been seen for a number of years uh, being being rechristened as all manner of nationalities. Like um, Alex Wright's dad, Steve Wright, was a German called Bull Blitzer who beat Marty Jones for the world title. That's Things right, like yes. That. Certainly it was uh, inter- international uh, rebranding. I, I know WCW certainly on these occasions were somewhat reliant on, you know, who was around from the office. So I think people from the office would be kind of uh, promoted and also renationalized. <laughs> yes. Um, so we, we mentioned David Roy Smith a little while ago, and he is on next because he is challenging Lord Stephen Regal for the WCW World Television title and a battle of the Brits. Um, Jesse is on fire on commentary, explaining the British class system I'm saying that Davy Boy is a commoner on the same level as street cleaners and Jack the Ripper. Um, and, and as you mentioned, Liam, we've wheeled out Michael Buffer early for the intros on this, the third match in. Um, the match starts with good old-fashioned British scientific wrestling. Davy outsmarting Riga while showing off with the odd cartwheel and head flip. Shivani sounds surprised on commentary that Davy's mat wrestling with Regal, but this is, after all, the, the bread and butter of what he grew up doing in the world of sport era of British wrestling. Um, in a highlight, Davy gets Regal up in the old Steve Gray surfboard manoeuvre. Um, he gets a two-count with a flying body press. Um, Jesse is clearly trying to make Shivani laugh during this. This is this is the first time it's really, really noticeable. It's um obviously totally unprofessional, not not something I've ever tried to do on commentary myself ever, honest. Um we passed the ten minute mark and the crowd are getting a bit more noisy. I think actually Liam, this was the match where Jesse starts um doing the play by play for a moment because Shivani's just gone silent. Honestly, there were two or three instances. I, I, the only one I can remember with any degree of certainty was during Flair Rude a little later on, so it's it's happening more than once. That's that's two. Uh, yeah. There may have been another one as well. But yeah, you're right. He's he he's just focusing on corpse and his colleague. Yes. <laughs> um, David Boy brings the match up to a vertical base with four minutes to go now, 15 minutes time. He gets cut off by Regal while charging into the corner. With three minutes to go, Regal has David tied up in a variation of the Regal stretch, as Jesse says how Regal is, as he put it, putting this in the deep freeze, i.e. running down the clock. Um, with a minute to go, David cracks out a big close and a suplex, which Regal sells fantastically. Davy hits a running power slam, but he doesn't hook the leg, and Regal kicks out of it, which I really don't think the commentators make a big enough deal of. Um, Davy then hits a pile driver. Randy Anderson, the referee, brilliantly does a full lap of the two of them before getting into position to ensure that he only reached two when the time limit expired. 
Uh, John, what do you think of this one? I, I was yeah, very pleasantly surprised. Um, I say good little bit of psychology at the end where they're sort of openly missing, you know, Regal is trying to, to run the clock down. Um, one piece that I really liked on there was where Davy Boy put the surfboard. Uh, normally when you do that, you kind of do the thing where you're trying to get their arms, you dig them in the uh, side so that they sort of flinch and you can grab their arms. Um, but Regal was really like like fighting it and Davy Boy had to actually like work his way into grab hold of the arms and kind of complete the move. So that was that was really nice. There was a monkey flip by um, attempt by Davy Boy Swift that was, I would say, not quite so smooth. That was quite entertaining. Um, the finish, as I say, was worked out really well. Uh, reading up on this later, apparently what actually happened was the pile driver was not scheduled at all. Um, the problem was that the referee told them, you got 10 seconds, hit your planned finish. Um, immediately as they went to that, they heard Gary Michael Petter announce 20 seconds to go. So they had to uh, kind of kick out and improvise some math. Oh, so that was, the, that was meant to be the power slam then. That's right. Yeah, that was meant to be the, the schedule finish, which is... Not as, not the worst story I've heard for a, a mix-up like that. There was a British show a couple of years ago that I was at that was doing a, a 30-minute Ironman match. Um, they were sort of went long, did a lot of their spots, uh, asked the ref uh, how long. The ref said 10 minutes. So they were like, excellent, let's let's pick pick up the pace here, really go into it. So when went Hell for Leather, did all their spots, um, just about getting to the, uh, the finish. And then they refs like, why are, you, why are you going so fast? Why are you going so fast? It was, they said, we're 10 minutes. We only had 10 minutes left. And he goes, no, 10 minutes gone. You got 20, you had 20 minutes left. So you've got another 10 minutes still to go. Oh. So there was um, quite a bit of, uh, of uh, making, making it up as they went along there. I think the, the other weird thing about this match is at the very beginning, they have a little graphic of them. And for some reason, um, it appears that uh, William Regal is wearing a rugby shirt, which is something you've never seen on on TV before or since, and certainly didn't put his character at the time. What, he was wearing a rugby shirt? Yeah, in the little, the little the on-screen, uh, like the graphic, with like, you know, Davy Boy all done up in his British oh, rockets. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, and you've got Sir William there in his... Uh, in his uh, bowler hat and tie and, and yeah. Regal just appears to be in a rugby shirt which is <laughs> slightly odd I mean fitting into the class thing I guess maybe but certainly not his uh, character at the time uh, and for the strangest reason all that does is is remind me of about 20 years later when WWE attempted to introduce their audience to Claudio Castanoli as Antonio Cesaro European rugby player <laughs> which is probably the only ever attempt by mainstream wrestling to to show rugby as a thing that exists. Unless, of course, you want to count the time that a clearly pissed Jake Roberts wandered down the aisle of an ECW pay-per-view wearing an old Wigan rugby to rugby league top. Yes, you t- was it you or Finn or someone? We've had this story, haven't we? I remember that. Yeah, it's it's. I can't remember which pay-per-view it is, but one of the ECW ones is where Jake just shows up, and for no apparent reason, because God knows where or how he'd have got it, he's wearing an old Wigan. Not I was going to say Wigan Warriors, but it's before they're even that. It's just Wigan Rugby League, sponsored I think by Norweb or something. Oh, but yes. Man. Well, one one other uh, wrestling rugby connection is. Um, the first time that Finn and Rob Butcher at Powerslam went over to ECW, uh, the first night the show was actually cancelled because of snow. So everybody was stuck in the bar all night drinking with all the wrestlers. Uh, and Sandman came up to Rob, who was wearing a, a Wigan rugby cap, 
or uh, like a Wigan rugby baseball cat, uh, saw it and they had about uh, an hour conversation about rugby and apparently Sandman was absolutely obsessed with it. <laughs> really? <laughs> I never knew that. Well, there you go. He, he always struck me as, as quite chatty, the Sam. I got, I got my chance to meet him just over a year ago when the Royal Rumble was at Philadelphia. They ran a House of Hardcore show a couple of nights before. And he's engaged me and my friend in conversation, all sorts of things. And the one take-home, it was, it was a great little 10-minute chat about a varying degree of things. But the one main take-home member is that me and my friend are the two men who introduced the Sam to the, to the phrase Colombian marching powder. <laughs> because he was he was legitimately curious as to what we called cocaine over here and myself and my friend who do not do drugs thought well we'll tell him you know some of these some of these funny names you're familiar with if you watch tv over here uh and he loved columbia marching pay probably still using it to this day so that's the, that's the sandman story i thought i'd bring to this table he uses the term columbia marching powder for legal reasons <laughs> we should say yeah, uh, I think I think that horse was bolted. To be honest, John, let's be fair. But but yeah, um, this match. I think Dean knows exactly where I'm going with this. TV title matches in WCW. I am about as much a fan of these as Dean is of having to cover the lengthy admin between matches about NWA title matches on the show. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I just, you know, you guys have touched upon some of the great wrestling. And it, there was some very good wrestling. And, the, you know, for, for, for guys like the three of us and probably everyone who, who's inclined to listen to our show, it's catnip to us. It's the sort of thing we'd, we'd love to see. These two guys going out, we're very familiar with them, especially like on, on these shores, all British, great, let's do it. But, um, no, the, the format just kills me. There's no suspense. It just doesn't work every time because... As much as wrestling is full of cliche at time, and as much as if you watch enough of it, you can you can predict a lot of things. The the time limit thing just was an instant end game for me as far as enjoying the match, which is a shame. But yeah, every time we have to cover one of these, that, that's where I end up going with it. But it's a shame. But but yeah. Uh, so if you think about it in, in different ways, so far, three matches for me that were worth watching. Even the opener was just so bad, it's good, entertaining crap. Uh, and then you've had technically two very good matches. And so far, three matches that are rewarding in whatever ways have all had really, really bad finishes. And we're not finished on that theme yet. Oh, God, no. Not at all. I mean, the thing, the thing also that I liked about this was that, you know, as we've said, it, it was British wrestlers doing some British wrestling. But it it seemed to show the audience a side of David Boy Smith that most of them didn't know existed. You know, we knew it existed from, from watching him in Britain, but I can't ever imagine him being able to do a match like this in the WWF, which is probably why both of us, Liam, preferred WCW to WWF. You are spot on, although I will say, I do remember, especially when John brought up that, the uh, surfboard spot, I do remember that changed slightly when Bulldog turned heel in the WWF. And he was moderately less gassed than he than he was most of the time. Uh, you know, he clearly was still taking stuff, but he was a little leaner during that phase. And he was going out there and doing 
full-blown wrestling matches, especially with the Brits and the Shawn Michaels. Because I always remember uh, the the surfboard spot on Shawn Michaels, who, as you can imagine, sold it just so well in their title matches they had. must have been 96. Uh, So there was that little period where, yeah, um, it's kind of the exception that proves the rule, really. So, yeah, it, it just points to me that Bulldog enjoyed those little opportunities to come unchained because obviously in his first few months uh, at WCW they're, they're putting him over as you know, a big challenger to their heel champion Vader uh, they've got the European tours to market to promote so he's got to kind of go one track like pet projects and uh, and people being groomed as the star of the show are and now he's in the mid card and he gets to cut loose a little fair play yeah indeed it's yeah it's it's why we love WCW. Um, okay, so we move from uh, from legit wrestling to something that is far removed from that, which is time to spin the wheel for our main event. Out comes Vader with Harley Race. Um, and, yeah, I was watching it being spun, and I wondered if they'd gimmicked it this year, as we had discussed, and it kind of slowly keeps slowly spinning until it reaches the Texas death match. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking that they, they rigged it up this year. Yeah. I mean, it certainly looks that way. Cause it, it, it starts out looking like a legit spin. It's spinning round and like, you know, any spinning thing, it's slowing down, it's slowing down. And then it kind of reaches a steady pace and then it speeds up again, and just goes just right round. So it's um, looking a little bit hokey and um, certainly looks like the best match of the various options there. Uh, for once they actually would have done um, barbed wire match between the two would have been quite spectacular and also probably quite horrific and not something you'd want to see. Um, yeah. So it was good to, you know, have one that actually, uh, you know, enhanced the feud between them and didn't involve a coal miner's glove on a pole. Indeed. Yes. Um, so we're now on match number four. It's the WW United States heavyweight title as the champion Dustin Rhodes defends against the stunning Steve Austin. And I tell you, it's just me. These two always seem to be wrestling each other. This, on this Halloween this, yeah, Well, this definitely isn't the first Austin Rhodes match we've covered on because yeah, yeah. of WCW. Night, Halloween Havoc 91. It was the TV title. Uh, and it was a good match. Bit of obligatory uh, bloodshed. But it was a good match. Uh, and yeah, here they are, just work it, basically working one title up. I imagine if yeah. it wasn't if it wasn't for them both getting fired in 1995, they'd have been wrestling for the world title at Halloween Havoc '95. Lol, J.K. <laughs> we're getting Hulk Hogan versus the Giant in monster trucks. Oh, of course, which is what the uh, nitros that we're watching is building up to yes. at the moment. Yes. So, um, yeah, we've literally got the good guy in white trunks and the bad guy in black trunks. Um, it gets off to a cagey start and the crowd is very quiet. Um, the first major incident in the match sees Austin send Rhodes into the corner and then charge in knee first. Rhodes moves out of the way and Austin flies over the top rope to the floor. Austin's selling the knee big and now we have a storyline base for the match. But it's taken us a little while to get going. Um, Austin pulls his knee pad down and... Um, 
he uses his good knee to execute a hard knee drop to Roger, which is a little bit of attention to detail that I absolutely love. Um, they start exchanging hard slaps and right hands in the center of the ring. The crowd comes to life a bit when Austin goes flying up in the air in the back body drop. Um, Austin counters a bulldog attempt by straddling Rhodes on the top turnbuckle in a seated position. Rhodes then lands a Fez press, which of course is a move Austin would use a lot later on in the WWE for a two count. Um, Austin leads Rhodes out of the ring and then grabs him in a double leg takedown and seems to get a three count with his feet on the ropes. Um, but Nick Patrick, the referee, quickly realizes his error in a matter that's a manner that for me was not nearly dramatic enough for professional wrestling. The match continues. Um, Austin celebrates his win, but then gets rolled up by Rhodes for the match winning three count in 1423. Uh, Austin then immediately nails Rhodes in the head with the title belt and Rhodes does the blade job that I'd been waiting for him to do all match long because the white trunks were a giveaway. John, what do you think of this one? I think uh, two things really stood out for me on on this one. One was the uh, sign in the crowd saying Stunning Steve is a wrestler of the 90s, which it's certainly a good shout there. Yep. Uh, the other was the, the reminder that I'd long forgotten was that the WCW hotline, you could phone up and get live commentary during pay-per-views. Now, why you would do this, uh, I believe it was 99 cents a minute. So that's... $170 for the show. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, somebody must have done it at least once. <laughs> and how much would the pay-per-view would probably be about, what, $15? something? Yeah, like probably about $15, $20. Yeah, so, you know, I guess if, you know, your mum had refused you permission to, to buy the pay-per-view, that was, you know, one way to get around it and you had a month to leave home before you were cool. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, it, may, it makes it clear why when Mean Gene joined WCW a year later, why he pushed so hard with Hotline stuff, because he was getting a percentage of, of that take. Uh, and with the, <laughs> with the amount of really shady, moody things going on with that, it was, it was such a horrible concept for the consumer, wasn't it, in every, in every sense of it? No, just let's, let's be fair for a man. He was a visionary. He invented clickbait. <laughs> he did indeed. Before before the internet even existed, this is very true. If it was if it was a modern version, it'd be Mean Gene saying, "You won't believe what happened next." And uh, picture number of Rick five will shock you. Yes, trust me, I've oh, done dear. a few of those in my time. Unfortunately, that's digital media for you. Now, was it just me, or was the Dustin Rhodes blade job at the end completely fucking pointless? Which made it glorious. Yeah, what's your point? Because. Well, you could barely see the blood, and it didn't play into the match because the match had finished. Yeah, uh, it reminds me that I think this one and five years later on what is my probably my favourite all-time WCW pay-per-view, Spring Stampede '99, where Chris Benoit for the finish basically does does a diving headbutt that involves a steel chair and Raven's head and does a blade job off the finish. So you only see his blood after the match is finished. So you've got two of those where they're two, two guys, you know, fortunately only one of them was a complete psychopath who murders his family. But, but two guys who, yeah, the, 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 the lunatic commitment to, <laughs> to their craft was, was undeniable. Um, the thing that stood out for me about this match, though, was that, I don't know if you guys noticed the, the mentioning on commentary of Colonel Robert Parker. That's because there was a graphic that said that Parker was part of this match as Austin's manager. That angle hadn't happened yet. 
They they blown the angle. The the Hollywood Amazing. block split that would come from basically Austin taking Parker as his manager, but Parker not wanting Pillman. And it, and then the, uh, the the friction happens, and then I think the way I say friction, they did they did it in one angle. It's not like it was a slow burn or anything, but yeah, they they blew it, and the commentators find themselves actually having to to do some insightful work, and they're trying to cover up this mess. I think he was saying like, oh yeah, he took credit for putting the title shot together because he saw something in Steve Austin. It was a mess. And 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 why had this mess happened? Right, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, what, what's the answer on my card? Because WCW. Correct for five points, Liam Happ. Well done. You know what? We, we use that joke so often. We should, like, rename the podcast in its honour. We, we, that's a good shout, you know. It's a very good shout. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. We'll get rid of whatever the old name was. Yeah, that was a rubbish name. Yeah. Right, well, we then see a clip of uh, how Two Cold Scorpio and Marcus Alexander Bagwell won the WCW World Tag Team titles last night on WCW Saturday night. Um, the match had actually been recorded three weeks previously, but a title change here could mean that Scorpio and Bagwell would officially have a one-day reign. Um, although this is better where people have lost the belt before they've even won it because of the the uh, TV schedules that we've previously mentioned. I think did, did that happen with the tag belts with Harlem it Heat and the Nasty Boys? Definitely happened. I don't know who exactly, but there was a negative day switch that was infamous. I'm going to have to look that yes. up in a second, aren't I? Absolutely. All right, you so, uh, match, <laughs> okay, match number five is uh, for the WCW World Tag Team titles. Uh, the Nasty Boys with Missy Hyatt taking on two cold Scorpio and Marcus Alexander Bagwell with Teddy Long. Um, Missy Hart has had her hair cut short and in a terrible oversight, she's forgotten her blouse. Um, as Jesse says, Marcus Bagwell can't dance. He really can't. In fact, this was, this was a particular source of amusement for you while you were watching it, Liam. Yes. Uh, sorry, I was, I was very much... You you're looking up but yes, the, the, yeah, the, <laughs> in WWE tag title history. The, the bag, first off, the Bagwell dancing is gloriously self-aware. Um, I get when you watch those two dance together, you get the impression that they were doing this behind the curtain moments before I due to go out, where Scorpio was literally reminding him of the moves because that's how it looks when they actually do it in front of a camera. Um, so I've de- I'm. There may well have been sank in 93, but when I've looked up negative title reigns, I was actually drawn to uh, the fabulous Freebirds beating Doom in February 1991, which was negative oh. six days. I feel, I'm going to keep looking because I feel, I feel like it happened in 93 as well, but maybe we're getting the two mixed up. Obviously, they're very similar. Okay. Um, well, the Nazi boys start out fast on the offense. Um, oh, M- Missy Hyatt is, by the way, Missy Hyatt is described uh, by the commentators as a, an escort. Um, and she is then forcibly kissed by Bagwell. And much like the opening movie, this, this just wouldn't happen in 2019. Um, so the Nazi boys start out fast on the offense. They're clearly wanting to win those title belts back. Bagwell does the early work with Scorpio coming in for some aerial high spots, including leaping off Bagwell's back and diving onto both Nazi boys on the floor. And for 1990, 
23. That's one hell of an innovative move. Um, in a scary spot later on, Nobbs goes to drop Bagwell throat first on the top rope. Sags assists and Bagwell overshoots the top rope, nearly lands head first on the apron. Um, he then gets a hard slap across the face from Missy Hyatt, which uh, is, a, a guess, uh, an act of revenge. The challengers have now isolated Bagwell in the classic tag team strategy. They've cut the ring off in half. Bagwell spends several minutes trying desperately to make the tag to Scorpio. When he finally does, the ref doesn't see it. Then less than a minute later, Scorpio actually does get tagged in. The hot tag lifts the crowd a bit. He hits a beautiful moonsault press off the top rope. I have to say, Scorpio had one of the best moonsaults in the business in my in my book. Um, Sags tries to break the pinfall up with an elbow drop, so Scorpio moves and Sags uh, hits his own partner. The crowd now really have come alive. They're on their feet. Missy Hyatt and Teddy Long both get up onto the apron. Bagwell gets thrown into Long, which knocks Long to the floor. Bagwell knocks Sags and Missy's heads together, sending Missy to the floor as well. Um, Scorpio hits a 450 splash on Nobbs, but referee Randy Anderson is busy putting Bagwell back in his corner. This allows Sags to smack Scorpio in the back of the head with his boot, which gives Nobbs the opportunity to loosely drape an arm over Scorpio to win the tag titles back in 14 minutes 38 seconds um so yeah we had a one day title reign for bagwell and scorpio and if memory serves me right we had a rematch of this at the royal albert hall less than a week later yeah it was certainly uh the nasty boys had their match down pat uh at the, the time um another again slightly baffling why would you do this finish um what is the point of taking your boot off and hitting somebody in the head with your boots when you could maybe you know hit them on the head with your boot with your foot in it i think you'd call it a kick mm. <laughs> but that's uh that's made up for by this beautiful piece of uh, uh of work by scorpio who at one point vaults up to the top rope to bounce off come straight off into a crossbody completely screws up he's probably coming down about 18 inches lower than he expected uh so just casually turns it into a flying forearm and makes it look like that's what he was planning to do the whole time nice he he really was he, he's one of those people i think i mean he did pretty well in japan but he he never really got as far as i would have liked to have seen him i don't know if that's just because of uh recreational activities or or what he did like to fly high he did he did well his his best stint was ecw which i'm sure is just a coincidence <laughs> yes um, but John, apart from uh, apart from the the dodgy finish, I, I suppose. Well, I suppose uh, when you take your boot off, it's it then goes into the realms of foreign object, does it? Is that the, is that the thinking? And it's possibly so. Useful? Yeah. I mean, I could, I could. It would make sense if you know you're doing it with your manager's boot, perhaps, but it had been loaded. Um, but yeah, it just seems it seems a, a bit of a not finish. And again, it's just. It's for WW finish off. You've got to have something cheating for the sake of cheating, even though what they're doing is kind of, you know, not necessarily illegal. Cool. Yeah, the thing is, though, is they're not really going to do the whole thing where the manager has sunk loaded up that we saw earlier in the show, because let's face it, they're not going to make Missy Hyatt wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> or, a, or a blouse, for that matter. No, why would they do that? And yeah, all those things you touched upon uh, about the, the comments made about her character and, and the spots in the matches. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if that sort of stuff was happening 
uh, in this day and age in 2019, there'd be some sort of legal action, wouldn't it? Oh wait, there was legal. Oh <laughs> the, yeah. The entire was. the entire thing ended in legal action. I'm not surprised because if you watch any show with Missy Hyatt on it, it it's generally very negative. It you remember the uproar for um, for Lita's swan song when she was a hill character. Uh, with Crime Time, that infamous moment in 2006, I want to say. Uh, and basically, Missy Hyatt had that on every show as a hill. I can't remember the Lita Crime Time thing. I remember the live sex show that she did with Edge, but what was the Crime Time thing? Uh, they, they they basically utterly shamed her character on the way out. It was, depending on what way you look at it, it was either one of the worst things they ever allowed to happen on WWE television slash pay-per-view or it was a very fitting way for a despised character garnering nuclear heat to to go out and i actually lean towards the latter myself but yeah and that's why i bring the comparison really because the the the, the missy hyatt stuff at, at this time was was even worse really but um yeah so i, I wanted to try and defend the the, the finish of this match to an extent maybe in a it's the best of a bad bunch sort of way but yeah the, the more you you look into the the psychology of the of using the boot as, as John went in depth on uh, you, yeah it, it's shit they're, they're all shit finishes and if there's anyone who's listening to this who you know you, you obviously like wrestling you like WCW but you're but you're not really that knowledgeable of the timeline or, or how things were going on. You just check it out for, to, to get your first glimpse and to have a little listen and a laugh with us. Um, I'm still confident that you'd be able to guess who the booker in charge of match finishes at this point was. <laughs> Come on. You, well, we no, all know who it was. Well, a tip for you, uh, of course, the, there was always the WCW thing was they have credits at the end. Uh, Look look for the section titled Assistance to Mr. Uh, Mr. Runnels. That is basically the accused. That's the booking committee. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. And that's, you you know, they've... uh, how many different uh, different rubbish finishes can you come up with one show? And it apparently takes a committee to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I love those credits. Yes, I love those credits on the WCW shows, though. And it must have confused people when you'd see like the name of the commentator as a producer or something. Mm. I love the uncensored ones where to be super edgy, in addition to using the, the newspaper cutout font, they just have first names. They ran an entire credit roll with just first names of everyone. Ah, well, almost half censoring them, you mean? No, I... I guess because it's just you know it's the 90s it's uncensored it's here you think of all these uh youth culture shows from the early and mid 90s where they'd you know they'd, they'd replace s's with z's and other crap like that yeah it's cringeworthy i think i might have this has just given me an idea for a multi-million dollar uh deal for wwe if raw had credits at the end they could have a you know a list of all the writing team that's your fourth hour right there <laughs> and um and then yeah you could uh you could play the sweepstake of which member of the writing team won't be on the credits next week oh yes uh, i have to go into a bit of a sidebar here because this is the day i have actually read one of the funniest things i've seen on uh reddit the, the wrestling reddit squared circle i don't know if you guys are subscribers to that 
but um, amidst all these news stories of people reporting about the the frustration of basically everyone in a position of power not named Vince McMahon at the moment, and it led to the comment section on one of these on one of these reports on Reddit led to a wonderful version of the old I suppose it's like ten green bottles where you have that counting down song where people go in 37 writers of Raw, 37 writers of Raw, and there'd be these little couplets as to why someone's been fired, like putting ketchup on a steak burrito and other, other inside baseball niche stuff that's been reported, like sneezing and sneezing, touching yes. his arm and other insane stuff. And you, and somehow in a, in a, in a complete crowd source, Comment after comment from random people who've never met have all contributed to to thirty seven verses of this. It was brilliant. I have to look that up. That I will send great. the link over. I might have to link up on because those those our listeners can have a check out as well because that that was very amusing. Okay, next up, uh, it's time for a Sid promo, but he has got Colonel Robert Parker with him to make sure he doesn't fuck it up. Doesn't really say anything of any consequence, but it is time for the match to see who is the franchise of WCW. Um, it's Sting versus Sid Vicious, and Sting comes out to his awful music, and uh, and it turns out this is our second Halloween Havoc rematch because, as the commentators say as well, we've seen this match before at Halloween Havoc 1990, to be precise. We haven't um, covered that though yet, have we? We have not. Because which is, that's uh, going to be a doozy when we get to it. Oh my word! Steiner Brothers v Nasty Boys. Oh no! Don't get me wrong. I'm looking forward to that match. It's awesome. But the uh, attempted kidnapping in the middle of the main event is going to be fun. Oh yeah, that's well. That's that's one that's up for grabs for a, a future guest, I suppose. Um, Sting starts off fast. He drops it to the floor and then to the apron with a pair of clotheslines before suplexing him back into the ring. Sid rolls out to the floor. Sting follows him out, sends him over the guardrail, and they brawl into the crowd all over the arena, much to the to the delight of the crowd and attendance. Um, the tide turns when Colonel Parker distracts Sting, who walks into a huge one-handed choke slam from Sid. Sting's then on the receiving end of both Sid's one-dimensional offense and the occasional choke with a handkerchief from Colonel Parker. Uh, outside the ring, Sid nails Sting across the bat with the weakest chair shot in history before pressing him over his head, dropping Sting throat first across the guardrail. Back in the ring, Sid is clearly now knackered as he goes through a chin lock, followed by a bear hug and another bear hug, and the crowd are getting quieter with every passing moment. Um, Sting comes back, he grabs Sid's leg to block a kick to the stomach, and from there, he takes him down, corners him, and hits a pair of Stinger splashes. Um, in a badly executed spot, Parker accidentally grabs Sid's foot instead of Sting's and nearly costs his man the match. While they argue, Sting runs into Sid, knocks Parker off the apron, rolls Sid up for the pinfall in 10 minutes 41, and Tony Schiavone has the audacity to say, what a match at the end. This was, I mean, we never expect a great match from Sid, but my God, was he phoning it in or what here? Yeah, um, quite a weird experience watching this match for me because I probably watched maybe the first four or five minutes um, and thought, see, this is not bad at all for Sid. This is one of his better matches. Um, I then fell asleep because this is about two o'clock this morning, which is not the worst reaction I've had to a Sid match. I mean, you don't have to watch it if you're asleep. That's great picked it up this morning and oh god that's when the bear hug started uh, to try and describe uh, how loose this bear hug was 
if you've we've previously covered on the show uh, the Halloween Havoc that ends up with the the Yeti and the Giant doing the sort of double bear hug on Hogan. Try and imagine that, but without Hogan Bear. That's that's about how much space there was between us. It, it's kind of just weird that, you know, Sid's several years in, um, but he hasn't quite yet worked out which stuff he can't do well and stop doing it. Um, again, though, it's, it's a commentary line that kind of is just so bizarre that it makes up for all of this, though, is when just for some reason Tony Schiavone uh, sees that, you know, it's Sting's uh, face paint is kind of like melting, coming down because, you know, Hard, hard paced match for the first few minutes under the hot lights, it's coming off. And Tony Schwine just goes, The paint is peeling off, but not his heart. <laughs> Which I, I have to say, I hadn't considered that had happened. There was a possibility of that happening until we brought that out. And that was kind of distracting thinking about. Thinking about his heart being peeling off during the match. <laughs> to be fair, if Ronaldo came out with that on an episode of NXT, everyone would be on social media talking about how brilliant he is. <laughs> there's a there, there, there's a certain there's a certain charm to that line, and I also I have to say I I resent you making jibes at the expense of Sid Vicious's learning curve, because look at the end at the end of the day at, at the end of the day he can realise when something's not working. He only did the big boot off the top rope once and immediately <laughs> realised that was a bad idea. It's a good point, well made, Liam. Yes. Yeah, it's but, very distasteful, the, but yeah. But, but what do you expect from this paper, this this pay-per-view from this podcast? Um, the thing I've got to wonder though is if there are plans for Sid to win the WCW World Title at Starcade in two months' time, which was obviously the plan before all the stabbing in Blackburn. Why the fuck was he losing cleanly to Sting on pay-per-view just two months before? Well, number one, it is Sting, so I suppose it's regarded as, you know, it's not like you're getting jobbed out, you're, you're losing to one of the top guys, and they're doing it about, yeah, who who is the top guy? Number two, as as, as daft as the finish was, obviously the, the point of it was that Sid was indeed going to be turning face, splitting from Parker, and challenging Vader for the for the title, so that was going to presumably play into the to the build over the next two months. But yeah, all that build was cut from the schedule. Sorry, as was as was Sid. Yeah. Uh, okay, moving on, we see a split screen of Vader and Cactus Jack preparing for their match. Vader is throwing punches with Harley Race while uh, Cactus is rocking back and forth saying, you can't hurt Cactus Jack. It is now time for our uh, world heavyweight title match. Not not that world title, the, you know, the other world title, the WCW International World Heavyweight title. It which, only gets uh, which, more confusing, don't worry. And, and it was recognised by a, I believe, by a fictitious organisation called WCW International. Is that right? That was certainly the, yeah, the story they were given. Um, and you did, as we mentioned, the aforementioned Dieter Crapper and his uh, his come his partners, um, which was kind of, I guess, meant to be a sort of a stand-in for the NWA. The idea that there was WCWs all over the world, and we were just watching the American one here. Um, it's very confusing here, though, because they haven't even come up with the, the international title. So it is just called the world title, which, again, does make you uh, wonder what it is that Vader's got. Yes. Well, remember, well, there, there was... why. remember why they were doing this as well. They this, this was an immediate reaction 
to the fact that after several months they decided that calling one of their major titles the big gold belt wasn't feasible. Because that's where it was before. It literally, for a few months, it was the big gold belt. Because apparently they couldn't just fucking go world title, WCW title. Which is, funny enough, we saw WWE use that a decade later. Well, several times, on and off. Uh, but it's not yes, that it difficult. Is. World title, WCW title. There you go. Then unify the fucking things. Earliest convenience, please. Yes. So, um, it's match number seven. It's WCW International World Heavyweight title. Ric Flair with uh, Fifi the Maid. Whatever happened to her, eh? Against champion Rick Rude. Uh, Michael Buffer gives it the big boxing-style intros. Rude has a pumpkin on his arse of his tights, or as Buffer puts it, wearing the Halloween-coloured tights. Um, a few minutes into the match, Rude misses a top-rope knee drop. Flair hits his cross-knee breaker and locks in the figure four early as the crowd cheer on. And one really annoying bloke somewhere in the front keeps doing a Native American war dance noise. I don't know if anyone else picked that up, but it really annoyed me. Um, Rude eventually creeps over to the ropes to break the hold. Flair continues to work on Rude's leg. Rude tries to block a Flair sunset flip by attempting to grab the ropes, but referee Terry Taylor on the outside sees it and removes hand, uh, Rude's hands from the ropes to emphasize the role that he's playing on the floor. Um, later, in a truly miraculous move, Ric Flair actually successfully lands a move off the top rope, a forearm off the top to the floor onto the top of Rude's head. Uh, you can tell he's working babyface. But don't worry, the balance of life is restored shortly afterwards when a second attempt is cut off by Rude punching Flair in the stomach. Rude grabs a chair, but Taylor takes it off of him. Jesse's having kittens at the commentary desk about how biased Taylor is against Rude. Um, Rude gains control of the match with a top rope form of his own, but sells his knee on impact, which is another really nice touch. Flair turns the tables on Rude, hits him with a rude awakening, but Rude kicks out of his own finishing move. Flair goes up top again and gets intercepted by Rude's boot to, uh, into his face. Randy Anderson then gets squashed in the corner and goes down. Terry Taylor gets in the ring, but immediately gets Rude run into him, and he goes down as well, because obviously being a, a former or a current wrestler, he isn't used to having bumps or people running into him. It's those stripes, um, I'm telling you. Does something to a man. Well, it's uh, it's the old bow, it's the old dicky bow, isn't it? On this one, it's um, it's all, the bow tie right, and blue right, shirt. Smart ass. All right. <laughs> oh, well, that, that makes sense, man, because that's cutting off the blood to his head, so he's weak to start with. Well, there you go. Makes perfect sense now. Absolutely. Yep. And you um, all came to this conclusion because of me. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Assistant to Mr. Ayers. Uh, <laughs> so um, then um, Rude gets what I, I can only describe as the worst looking set of brass knucks in the world. It kind of looks like a napkin folded over on itself. Um, uh, but Flair back suplexes him before he can use them. Um, they fall to the canvas and then a ringside attendant in a WCW crew shirt decides to take the knucks away. Flair, though, keeps Flair keeps his composure. Let's give him credit. If this was Shawn Michaels, can you imagine? Oh, Flair keeps his composure, walks over, grabs them back off him so that the random bloke doesn't fuck up the finish. He nails Rude with the knucks and puts them back in his trunks. Um, Taylor's three count gets interrupted by Randy Anson, who says he saw Flair use the dodgy fake brass knucks. Flair is disqualified after 19 minutes and 22 seconds as the crowd chant 
bullshit. Rick Rude then tries to kidnap Fifi, but Flair saves her, tries to put the figure four leg lock on Rude. Rude slinks off with his title belt. So, yeah, this is probably get one of the peaks of uh, the terrible finishes. It's kind of a, if you look at the show as a whole, it's every finish is plus one level of terrible. So things that would normally have a clean match, a clean finish, have like a, a super finish. Things that would be, let's have, um, you know, the heel manager interfere and, and getting pinned become, let's have the heel manager interfere and he gets counted out for some reason. This one is the Dusty Rose finish, a terrible finish to do start with. Let's make it one step worse. The point of a Dusty finish is that you established two things. One is, I thought my guy had won. I, I've seen him pin the, the champion. I know he can pin him and he got screwed over. Also, this heel champion, he's he's cheated and he's got away with it because he did something illegal and yet somehow that's let him keep the belt. That's not fair. What's actually happened here is that the baby face has twatted his opponent with some brass knucks, being caught, uh, being caught doing this and has been disqualified. It's, what am I complaining about? What's he complaining about? This this seems perfectly fair to me. And and surely as the dirtiest player in the game, Ric Flair would be able to not get caught. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you, you win some, you lose some, I guess, when you, you, you take these chances. But I mean, the match as a whole, I was absolutely fearing it because I, I was remembering sort of mentions of how terrible it was. And I was, in fact, thinking of the full ball match for the month before, which is apparently far too long and, and, and too much stalling. And this match, it, like, it starts out great. And then about 10 minutes in, Rick Rude suddenly decides, yep, I'm done. We're going to have a sit down now. And it's let's have a chin lock. Then let's have a, you know, a headlock. Let's just lie on the floor. And it's not like we're working a hold. It's we're, we're stalling for time for some reason, which seeing as the show ends up running pretty late, doesn't really seem any reason why they did that. Um, but it's, it's, it's yeah, just a, a, a bizarrely unnecessary, you know, dusty finish for the sake of doing a, a dusty finish. And I don't know why the book of Dusty Road did that. <laughs> yeah, for the second straight year, um, at Halloween Havoc, we've got Rick Rude in a NWA slash world title match filled with ridiculous fucking admin that no one cares about. And that just really leaves you feeling flat. Although, it, obviously, in the case of Ruchona, the, the whole thing was terrible from start to finish. There was a bit more redeeming content in this one. But, but yeah, it's... It, it, there's a reason why there was a there there was a months long feud between Rick Rude and Ric Flair and you really have to dig deep into the recesses of your brain to remember it because it wasn't memorable by any stretch of the imagination outside of the innuendo involving Fifi. Was it just me or did did Flair and Rude just not gel together as a as a pair of opponents? For me there there was something about Rick Rude as as a quote unquote headliner, even though the, the two worst offenders, like these two Halloween Havoc matches we're talking about, um, weren't really main event in the show. But yeah, there, there was such a difference between Rick Rude wrestling for the Intercontinental US title and Rick Rude fighting for some sort of convoluted version of a world title, which is a shame because, you know, we, we all know just his talent was, wasn't to be disputed, but. It, it didn't translate into main event matches. And one of the symptoms of that could arguably be the fact that, yes, um, as John alluded to, there, there seems to be like a, 
a perception of how long a match in that position should go. We see uh, we see that even to this day with Triple H. If he has a WrestleMania match, it has to go 25 minutes, even though oh, it would yes. probably be a pretty fucking good match if it went 13 or 14. Um, and it, it does carry on in, in, in a lot of realms, in a lot of contexts, and that was certainly one of them. You know, uh, his match with Ricky Steamboat at Beach Blast 92 went 30 minutes, and it was awesome. But there's something about the way a, a, a world title match is, is structured in this in this day and age that we're looking at. I don't know. This is all speculation, but so obviously it's just something about Rick Rude just did not translate into the, the again, quote-unquote main event scene, even though he wasn't main eventing. Mm. It, I th- it just to me, I think Ric Flair's best opponents are the ones whose characters are completely opposite to him. You know, Rick Steamboat, Dusty Rhodes, and Rick Rude and Ric Flair are just a little bit too similar for me. Yeah, and again, they similar kind of styles uh, in the ring. That you know, Flair is whether he's a babyface or heel on on paper is is often kind of wrestling a heel kind of style. Um, also, Rick Rude traditionally is somebody who's you know when he gets his comeuppance is bouncing around like a madman by this point he's not doing that anymore because he's he's had the, the first of his neck injuries so kind of that's been taken out of it um so it's, it's not styles that really go together well but i mean maybe we're being a bit harsh on it because as liam was saying there there is this storyline that um you know rick rude is is going after fifu the maid and you have to say you know where the two men are now that is tremendous long-term booking <laughs> yeah, just whatever you do, do not Google image search Ric Flair and Fifi the Maid kissing. Just don't do that. Oh, and yes, I am so, saying don't do it in the hopes that someone listening does that. Just just post it on the Twitter page. Go on. Um, okay, it's main event time. Um, it's the Texas Death Match. We go through the rules of such a match. Um, in true WCW fashion, they don't make sense because rule number two is states that falls do not count, but rule number four says that falls count anywhere in the building. Um, what they actually mean is that falls don't necessarily end a match. There will be a 30-second rest period after a pinfall um, has been scored, or a submission, I guess. Um, and the wrestler who conceded the fall then has a 10-count to answer. Failure to answer that 10-count will, will end the match, and it's also no DQ. So this is a non-title match. It's just a, a grudge match. It's Vader with Harley Race versus Cactus Jack. Michael Buffer has either fucked off home earlier or has reached his contractual limit of matches to announce because we've got Gary Michael Capetta back announcing our main event. Um, this is the first match between the two since the infamous powerbomb on the floor six months ago and the even more infamous amnesia angle with Cactus Jack. Um, Vader and Cactus collide on the ramp and start to brawl around ringside. Cactus hits Vader over the head with a fan's camera. Um, do you remember them before mobile phones, those big black things you'd have around your neck? Um, he then waffles him over the head with a chair. Um, different different time i guess you know um no chair shots to the head these days on the ramp vader tries to suplex cactus into the ring but cactus reverses it and vader gets suplexed onto the ramp um cactus is bleeding from the eye they fall into a grave that forms part of the halloween havoc set that's marked r.i.p vader vader emerges from the grave he too is now bleeding 
Cactus charges in, lands a huge clothesline to the ramp for a pinfall. We go to a 30-second rest period. Vader gets up. The match continues. Cactus drops an elbow from the ramp to the floor for another pinfall. Vader once again beats the 10 count. Uh, we go into the ring briefly where Vader is thrown into a table um, that doesn't break. It's propped up in the uh, well, while it's propped up in the corner. Um, he kind of just bounces off of it. Um, Cactus goes for an insane looking sunset flip to the apron from from the apron to the floor. Vader gets thrown over the guardrail and the Cactus flip dive over the railing ends badly for him, just landing on his back and the back of his head. The camera then cuts the Harley race to the taser that he doesn't want the camera to see. Um, Vader just about lands a moonsault that gets a three count, but Cactus Jack beats the ten count after the rest period. Out on the ramp again, Cactus jumps onto Vader's back, so Vader just drops backwards with an almighty thud. He then DDTs Cactus onto a chair on the ramp. The WCW trainers and medical crew then come out to check on Cactus, but Vader sends them scurrying, hurling the medical bag down the ramp. Um, he gets a three counts, another rest period. During that rest period, Cactus gets up and DDTs Vader onto the ramp. Um, the 10 count then starts, and for some reason, the referee starts counting them both as they're both down, even though Vader didn't get pinned. Cactus is then rising to his feet, so Race nails him with a taser. Um, well, I say he nails him with the taser. The taser itself seems to be producing a real electric surge, when, but it isn't on when he hits Cactus with it, because obviously he would legitimately electrocute him. Uh, also, it makes a noise when the electricity is running through it, but and it doesn't at that point. But we'll we'll get into whether the taser was legit or not in the moment, I'm sure. Um, Vader gets to his feet. He has declared the winner as the crowd murmur their disapproval. Cactus manages to get up and gives a double arm DDT on the ramp for Harley Race so that Harley can take his obligatory pay-per-view bump. Per his contract. Uh, as per his contract, yes, indeed. John, first of all, was it a real taser? Now, the question is, which is easier to get, a fake taser or a real taser? I'm guessing it's probably a very different answer in America and particularly, you know, down in Louisiana. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's the kind of thing they'd be, be stupid enough to do. But, um, but yeah, match was you know absolutely amazing match. It wasn't until you sort of mentioned it there that I'd, I I kind of not really noticed they basically aren't in the ring at all. Um, incredibly brutal. I uh, had a little look at Cactus's book afterwards, and he says that the bump where he's uh, on Vader's back and Vader just jumps straight oh, yes. backwards on the floor. Um, apparently he was thinking he came up with the idea for that move, and he was basically so fed up with WCW and wrestling at the time. He was hoping that would make some kind of injury that would come up on scans and you could get a Lloyd's of London payout. Um, oh, turns out all he actually did was, you know, just crush a lot of stuff uh, and, and get a load of bruising that didn't didn't really help him in that regard. Um, fantastic match, you know, absolutely wonderfully violent, living up to the feud and the stipulation and then just utterly bizarre finish. Made even slightly more confusing perhaps by Gary Michael Capetta, who for some reason... Every time we get to the, uh, the countdown, he starts doing the countdown, um, having to do it very quickly because it's clearly not 30 seconds because 30 seconds of watching somebody live there before you can count them down is pretty boring. So the, these um, counts just suddenly seem to speed up. Um, and it's quite bizarre because all the crowd are counting down from 10 to 1, and when we get down to 10 to 1, nothing's happened because that's when the referee's count starts. 
Um, and then at the end, Gary Capetta announces that uh, Vader was the first man up, as if they'd both been knocked out and done a sort of Rocky II kind of finish. Um, so, yeah, really very fitting in with the show. You know, it's probably the best match on the show, probably the worst finish on the show, and pretty much sums up, uh, you know, the creative efforts on, on this pay-per-view. I mean, surely Vader could have done something horrible and horrendous to Cactus to finish him off, and and he wouldn't have looked any worse for it. Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd think so. It would kind of, you know, make sense with the character of, you know, he he wouldn't be beaten. He he never gave up, and just you know, his body went out on him. Um, he could have been knocked out. It would have made sense with a kind of previous finish, but it, it seemed to be kind of a company motto of why ever have a clean finish when you can come up with something creative. <laughs> Liam? Yeah, I'm just going to come out and say it. I don't think this match has aged well at all. And I, I, I was one of the guys, like most people, I know they, 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 this match is near and dear to the hearts of many a WCW fan. Uh, but there, there are so many ways in which it hasn't aged very well. Some of it touched upon there by John. Another thing is is just the whole, the whole clunkiness of... The rules, and I know you know the Texas Death Match. It has a has a rich storied history in wrestling. There have been no doubt many Texas Death Matches where the intensity was there despite the rest periods and things like that. Obviously, there was a there was an age in wrestling where rest periods and going back to the dressing rooms and coming back for another fall and all that sort of stuff was was absolutely accepted but you can see here why it was such a good thing that we you know five six seven years later we evolved into last man standing and the and the live dynamic format of essentially the same match um yeah the, the, you know, i'm all for the brutality but we said that slightly similar when we watched um Cactus and Max Payne versus the Nasty Boys in '94. That these, you know, the unprotected shots just make you cringe in this day and age. Knowing what we know, it just yeah. brings all that memories back to you. So they're harder to watch. And these are two guys, as we know, who can bring that level of physicality and brutality without unprotected chair shots. So it's a shame in that respect. And yeah, the finish is just arse. It's such a shame they've paid it off like that. To to go back to what John says about you know coming up with a with a more believable finish with while at the same time protecting Cactus to an extent. Yeah, I mean that 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 piggyback and then falling back on the ramp spot. Maybe that could have been it. You know, Vader drapes an arm, staggers back up, gets his bearings, and and Cactus can't make his feet. Then I don't know, but but yeah, the taser gun was ridiculous, but. Further to your original question, Dean, um, I think I I don't have a clue, obviously, but I'm guessing from what we saw that they're using a a, a, a real taser or at least something that has real taser elements because the idea is, is that Harley Race gets himself nice and good on camera as he produces it out of his pocket and he does a little... A go of it, he, he you know, as it, almost if he was testing it out to make sure the camera Ooh. picks up, up the sparks, and then he jabs it into Cactus's leg without actually turning it on. So I so said that that old, that age-old sleight of hand, I guess, where you show that it works, but then you don't actually use it at the crucial moment. That's my theory, anyway. I think that spot kind of works very differently 
maybe how you know i would watch it at the time thinking wrestling was you know a lot more legit as to kind of watching it with a, a different eye now i think at the time for kind of what the audience they were going for it kind of makes sense because it's like oh oh, oh there's it's kind of like Chekhov's taser. It's like, oh God, Cactus is in trouble here. What's going to happen here? You kind of watch it now, and you're like, you're sort of five or six minutes into this, you know, utter brutality of this match. Like, how's it going to go? What's a great finish? You see him get the taser out. And it's just like, oh great. So anything I see now is a waste of time because that's the finish, and it's going to be rubbish. Yeah. Also, Race does it in a sneaky behind the ref's back way in a match he has interfered flagrantly throughout from start to finish and there's no disqualification yeah well that's why but but then he and you see that a lot in and this isn't just a dusty roads thing you see that far too much in wrestling booking where you have no disqualification stipulations and you see things that hammer home that it's no dq all match and then at the finish they have to do some sort of ref bump or behind the ref's back it's like what the fuck is wrong with you Oh. Yeah. yeah, we're we're eight for eight on the on the match finishes. It's yeah, it's... yeah. But I mean, the the other thing to bear to think about, you know, with this and especially with with that main event was compare this to to WWF Survivor Series, which was a month later, um, and that had the Hart family, the Hart brothers against Shawn Michaels and his masked knights, men on a mission, and the Bushwhackers painted up as clowns. It was very clear, you know, although the two companies were were a, a distance apart that WCW is going in a very different direction to its rivals with the, with the Vader title reign. Oh, oh, make, make no mistake about it. Uh, that, that alternative, especially saying this on the week that we find out about, uh, all elites TV deal. The alternative is very welcome to guys like us. And to be clear, when I say the match hasn't aged well, at the end of the day, it's still a great match. It's not terrible. But I think the better to, to, to hammer home my point, the best way I think I can do this is to bring up um, Bret Hart versus Steve Austin at WrestleMania 13. One of the greatest matches of all time and a match I personally probably end up re-watching at least once a year. Could call it my Christmas match if you want. But there are certain yeah. matches that... You know, regardless of the consensus, and the consensus for that one happens to be that it's amazing. Uh, the per- on my personal level, yeah, I go and rewatch that match uh, without foul, and that is a physically grueling, intense match. It's compelling, it's engrossing, all those adjectives. Um, with this match, I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I pretty much only watched it again for this this podcast. So yeah. I think that's the best way of hammering home. There, there's certain matches that pull you in. This is obviously the body of the work is great at the time. Like a lot of Cactus Jack stuff early on, it's the physicality really just wows you. But but yeah, so especially with the unprotected shots and just the, the rules all over the place. Last man standing was the, the best thing to happen because it gave us this grudge match, but in a far more fluent manner. And as yes. a result, it, it's just not got that rewatch factor that other great matches have for me. Uh-huh. Okay, well, that brings the pay-per-view to uh, to an end. And uh, before we go, of course, we always ask our guests uh, about choosing a theme tune. So, John, what? Um, well, should we? I, I, I was going to ask, what have you? What have you chosen, Liam? Hit play, and we will find out what John has chosen. <laughs>
Amazing. Two gold Scorpio. Why have you chosen this one, Josh? It's a very simple, very personal reason. Um, as I've mentioned, I'm a freelance writer. I work from home. One of the benefits and downsides of working from home is you haven't got people around you, which, you know, can be banned in some ways. You don't have the banter, you don't have anything. You still don't have anyone to judge you. You can sing when you like. And I have to say, as a freelance writer, the song I'm most likely to sing to myself at any t random time, knowing I can get away with it, knowing no one will judge me, is I'll just break out into two Cold Scorpio's music. <laughs> That's all well and good, John, but what you have to tell us is where does your dancing to this rank between Scorpio and Marcus Bagwell? Oh, I would say it's, it's definitely uh, definitely more Bagwell, more Bagwell, maybe a bit of Bagwell and Scotty Riggs. <laughs> now, I'll tell you one thing that I always think of with this tune was I was on a train to London and it could actually, it was either, I don't think it was to a WWF show, it might, uh, sorry, to a WCW show. I think it might've been one of the WWF shows in, in the following year. Um, but me and a couple of friends were all going on the train from Brighton to London. And um, I don't know if you've noticed, but each train carriage on the inside, um, at least with, with Southern Rail or whatever it was at the time, uh, has a, a five-digit serial number above the door for each carriage. And and my uh, my friend who was facing the door realised that, uh, that the serial number was 60230, and he just broke out into, everybody, we're on 60230. <laughs> and, and, I, and, see, and like 25 years later, I still remember the serial number of that train because of it. So, so there you go. Ah, marvellous. Well, that brings us... Um, coming to uh, the end of this this podcast if you uh, have enjoyed it then please give us a follow on twitter at because wcw or on facebook.com forward slash because wcw um we'll be back very shortly with another episode john lister it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show sir thank you very very much for joining us uh, thank you very much it's been great to be here uh, any last minute cheap plugs that you'd like to get in before we go Yep, check out all my books on Amazon. Um, if you are going to buy any tapes, don't get them from Nick Hickson. <laughs> Excellent. Liam, we will uh, we'll catch up again probably well, next week. We'll be talking about the Luchadors, I guess. Yeah, shall we do something next week? I feel like we should make up for lost time after two laptop incidents on my part. And uh, yes, with the with the news of Silver King's passing, it'll be, it'll be lovely to look back on the... On, on the sheer influence of the Luchador contingent on the Monday Night Wars and Nitro as a whole, I think it'd be a cool thing to do. Excellent, we should do that. So thank you so much for downloading us wherever you may be in the world. We'll be back very shortly, so thanks for listening. I'll see you ringside.